50. There are 50 chapters in Genesis, and we're only to chapter 18. So turn there with me as we continue through this trek in the first book of the Bible. This is an episode that usually is taken with the whole narrative about Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham interceding. I want to take these verses out, though, for a moment and analyze them a little more closely because there's something there for us to see that I think is um, unto itself. It certainly relates with what will come next, but I think you'll see something now. It's a pattern that we find in Scripture, the way God works. He pours out His grace into His children by His covenant commitment, just showers them, showers us with grace, and that promotes or that that provokes a response, and that's what we see happening in Abraham in this late stage of his life as we've watched him grow and develop a couple steps forward, one step back, and here we are just having had dinner with three angelic or two angelic beings and God himself, the third person, uh, these three personages. At first, he's not sure who they are. He's showing his hospitality, but then it becomes clear as they start talking who they are, and especially as, as God speaks to him. And then they give comfort to Sarah, who needed that comfort. She was struggling with the promises of God, thinking they weren't going to happen. And here God assures her that she will have the son that has been promised inside of a year. So that's part of the reason for their stopping at Abraham's house. But there's something else. Uh, two of the two messengers, the angelic messengers, will go on a mission from God to Sodom and Gomorrah to ascertain how bad things really are. Of course, this is spoken in human terms to recognize um, something of their, their analyzing according to God's standards. It's, it's meant to be an example to Abraham. We'll see that as it unfolds. But God then turns and says some special important things to Abraham, and I want you to notice them because I think they are an encouragement to every believer, as Abraham rightly is held as a prototypical believer, maybe the first Christian of the Bible. He believed, it was counted unto him as righteousness, and his life as a redeemed person unfolds accordingly. So here now as I read God's Word, this is Genesis 18, starting at verse 16. I'll read to just verse 21. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after, to, after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Let's pray. Father, we are continuing to examine the life and events of Abraham, who Scripture refers to as our spiritual father. Please help us to understand your word, and may your Holy Spirit work in our hearts that we might live out the truth of your word. You are a great and gracious God, a mighty Savior. 
please be honored by the preaching and the receiving of your transforming word this day. In Christ's name, amen. What we have is more of God pouring out his grace upon Abraham. An analogy that may help is the construction of the Hoover Dam some many years ago, 1931 is when it started. It came after a dust pole era where there was no way to get water to three major state areas. So they started to construct this incredible work of engineering. They placed it across the Colorado River, the Nevada-Arizona border. It took five years to build. This enormous dam formed and held back the water of Lake Mead. Eventually, over time, it filled up a huge lake. And from that largest man-made reservoir in the country at that time, um, channels of water could be delivered to three different states. Millions of people benefited from the power that was generated and the water that went to those places. Even to this day, areas are dependent on the water that comes from that reservoir of water that was built up over that time. As it goes down a bit, it has to be shut and filled up more uh, and then channeled to the places that need it. I think this is a great picture of what God does in Abraham, the patriarch's life. Over the course of years, he keeps pouring grace into Abraham, grace upon grace, manifold grace, to the point where he is able to now to start channel that gra- channeling that grace to other people, uh, to nations eventually. The Messiah comes through Abraham. And even we today are beneficiaries of the grace that God poured out on our spiritual father, Abraham. In fact, I would say in all of our lives, in the life of this church, you know, as Galen talked a bit of the history of the church, I think it's a picture of God just pouring his grace upon us, grace upon grace. Nothing deservant about it, just like Abraham, just God chooses to pour his grace upon us so that we would be built up to pour or point the channels of grace to others. And that's true for you individually. He's been growing you in grace, and it looks different for everybody, in saving grace, in sustaining grace, even what's called suffering grace when we go through difficulty, sanctifying grace, all the graces he pours out upon you is for the purpose of your serving others by turning the channel of grace to them. That's what we see building up in Abraham in just before one of the most catastrophic, really tragic moments in the Old Testament. Abraham is shored up in this grace so that God teaches him how to understand his righteousness, understand his justice, understand his place in the world as his covenant child. It's coming to a head with something that's happening particularly, but it's also a picture of what God is doing in the life of his church as he pours his grace upon the church so that the church can point that grace to all those around and be the blessing to the nations that God promises through Abraham. It is absolutely true. Scripture teaches this. There are magnificent privileges, privileges that we can't even begin to count that come from God's grace. There are also responsibilities that flow from that grace that God has given us. The life of a believer, your life and my life, it's been bought by the precious blood of Christ. The life of a believer is redeemed by the grace of God and through Christ. As believers, we find our purpose in Christ and through Christ by His grace. It's all of His grace into us and all of His grace that goes out. 
We might say that the mission, the God-ordained mission of the believer is defined by God's grace shown to us. As much grace as God has shown us, that's the mission he has for us. We are people living in reaction, in response to the grace of God shown to us. We were once lost, but now we're found. We were once dead, but now we are alive. When Paul reflects on the life of Abraham 2,000 years after the fact, listen to what the apostle says about Abraham, that prototypical Christian. Just as Abraham believed God, trusted in God, rested in God, it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the description of his faith in God. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons and the daughters of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Paul writes, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We are recipients of the grace of God, the magnificent grace of God, and we have responsibility now in light of that. Abraham, a model for us all. He receives God's favor and the many privileges that come from being chosen, yet you know and I know he's got all the warts in wounds and broken parts that all of us have. We see that in his life. He's the picture an early picture of a Christian who also had responsibilities that flowed from the grace that God showed him. Yes, there is, it is true, there are magnificent privileges that come from God's grace as well as important responsibilities. Let's look at the passage and first appreciate in verse 16 down to verse 18, the privileges of grace really typified in Abraham. Um, They're coming to a bit of a head now at this moment in his life. And don't miss the first level of grace that's, that's unfolding before our eyes in this episode. Verse 16, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Now, don't miss this, the subtlety here. These heavenly visitors, two angelic beings, and God himself in the third per, in the third of the personages, maybe the second person of the Trinity himself. We don't know for sure. But these three heavenly messengers have Abraham with them while they determine what God's will is for Sodom and Gomorrah. The privilege of Abraham to have these angelic beings and God himself in some way consulting with him, it seems. The, the privilege, the grace that God's showing to Abram in this case. You remember back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is first called from his paganism unto relationship with God. He promises salvation. God believes him, follows after him to the promised land. The first real show of God's grace to Abraham. And of course, we see Abraham mess up more than not in most cases. So God, instead of casting him off because he's made this promise in Genesis 15, he ratifies the whole relationship with a vivid ceremony of God's grace. And it's grace because it's only God who walks through the cut animals. It's a statement of it, yes, Abraham, you are broken and fallen. You need redemption, and I give it to you. And it's, I'm committing myself to this covenant. And if I don't keep my covenant, the same thing that happened to these animals will happen to me. Not to you, to me. So Genesis 15, another 
renewal of God's grace. And then in Genesis 17, to kind of top it off, and I'm not only going to do all this for you, I'm going to give you a new name, and I'm going to give Sarah a new name, and I'm going to give you a sign to apply to yourself and to your children to remind all the generations of who is the one who removes our filth, who's the one who removes our sin. It's God who does this. And so God consistently and constantly pronounces his gospel grace to Abraham, filling him up for the moments that he will need it so that he can be the channel God has called him to be. The grace of God. What do we mean by this? This is that divine favor that he shows to someone, someone who deserves wrath, but he shows the favor because of something someone else has done for them. Christ. That's divine grace. And that's the grace that's being shown to Abraham from the get-go. It's what saves him. It's the same grace that sanctifies him. It's the grace that sustains him when he's suffering. Have you ever contemplated the ways that God has shown you grace? the magnificent privileges of grace that you have received, that he saved you for eternity, that he's provided for you what you need right now to lay hold of him, to trust in him, that he's given you eyes of truth that make you know when you hear Christ proclaim that he is the Savior, he is my Savior, he's my only hope, he's my good hope. That's God's grace to you that you would even know that and acknowledge that. You didn't come up with that. You didn't just reason it. That's because God enlivened you. He opened your eyes from blindness. He took the scales off. He took you from death to life. Now you know Jesus is who he is, and you believe on him. Don't underestimate. If that's all we did and went home right now, it would be more than any of us deserve to be reminded of the grace of God to us in Christ, period. Nothing else has to be said except God keeps saying things. He keeps begracing us more. He makes more commitments. He makes more renewals. He does more things to show us he is the gracious one. In fact, he kept your heart beating through the night. That last breath you just took, that I just took, it's all of God's grace. There are magnificent privileges that we have of God's grace. Yet, we're still in the first verse. The Lord said, verse 17, look there with me. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Read that again. The God of the universe just asked a rhetorical question, and it's a display, no doubt. He's just demonstrating something. He doesn't need Abraham's um, wisdom about it. That's not the point. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? What privilege to even consult with Abraham, to even let Abraham know what he's about to do? The Lord Almighty pauses to ask a rhetorical question about owing an explanation, if you will, to one of his creatures. What a condescension. What favor towards Abraham. What privilege of grace that would prompt God to speak to one of his creatures. Why would God reveal his will to his creatures? Can you imagine him doing this? You take the book in front of you and open it, and that's what God's done for you. He has spoken to you. He's spoken to us. He doesn't have to, but he has. He's given us his word, just as he gives Abraham his word right here. This is a show of God's covenantal favor towards Abraham, his manifold layers of grace, his commitment on the big scale to bring the Messiah forward and on the micro scale to save him, Abraham, for himself. This dialogue that's happening with God and Abraham, or as God speaks, It's for Abraham's benefit. It's an anthropomorphic mechanism. He's speaking as a man would speak so Abraham can hear and be encouraged to challenge him to act wisely and nobly, as Bruce Waltke says in his commentary. 
The Lord said, verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And it keeps, it keeps coming. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. Why will he surely become a great and mighty nation? Because God said he would. Because I know what I have made of Abraham and will make of him. I should tell him what I'm going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah here. I should give him this revelation. This is God reasoning. It's not Abraham earning it. It's God reasoning aloud, pouring more grace, more privilege, more standing upon Abraham, the covenantal uh, recipient of God. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great, nation, uh, a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Knowing my plan through Abraham, I will reveal more to him. I've already shown him enough grace. I'll show him more grace now. God recalls what he has promised to Abraham. Abraham is his covenant child. Many great things in store for Abraham. And in light of his covenantal standing that God has placed him in, he gives him more revelation. He begraces Abraham. Why should he hold back from Abraham what he's about to do? Especially as it relates to the righteousness and the justice of God on display. He wants his people to know why he does what he does. And his people are ready to receive it. Because they know who God is. Why should he reveal his holy counsel to Abraham? Because he's his child and he has chosen to. What would prompt God Almighty to stop and contemplate telling Abraham or you or I anything? Well, thank God that he did speak to Abraham. Thank God that he has spoken to us. In the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, 2,000 years again after Abraham's time, The author of Hebrews puts it in the most beautiful language, what God has done for us in this grace he's shown us. We know he's shown us grace in Christ. Why do we know? He says in Hebrews chapter 1, the first two verses, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's spoken to us. And we come, and I hope it's more than just now that we open it, to see what he has said. Our confession of faith does a great job of capturing the Bible's total teaching on this topic. And this is probably one of its strongest points in the first chapter, first section. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God. In other words, nature proves there's a God. The trees show it. Space shows it. The animal life around us shows us the things that can be created from the things that were here. That shows that there's a a God who has put this all here. A rational person gets that. That's not something uh, that takes faith. That's obvious. The tree didn't get there itself. The fish didn't put itself in the sea or the pond. The problem is we know enough so that we're accountable to that God, but we don't know what to do with it because we're not right with that God. And that's what the confession says, which comes from Romans. It leaves people inexcusable. But these things, these natural things, are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. We have to have God speak to us. We cannot Figure it out without him talking to us. He must reveal himself to us. Therefore, it pleased the Lord in sundry times and in divers' manners to reveal himself and declare that his will unto his church. 
and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly into writing. Over the course of time, which we're reading that time in the, in the scriptures, where God reveals himself through the prophets, reveals himself through acts of redemption. He sh- and then after the fact, by his spirit, inscripturates those things. So we have them preserved for us safely because the Holy Spirit works this way, specially. So now we have the record of God's redemption in his plans for the present, and his plans for future redemption, all there for us in the Scriptures. That's what it means when it says to commit these wholly to writing, making the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. The Old Testament looks forward to Christ's coming. The Old Testament testifies that Christ came and puts it together for us, and now we have this testimony until he comes again church, we should never say God does not talk to us. God speaks to us through his word and his spirit. And it's dynamic and he never stops. And we happen to be at one of the high points of it right now. The people of God together around the word of God, preaching the word of God, reading the word of God, singing the word of God, praying the word of God, participating in the sacraments the way the word of God lays out. These are the ways in which God keeps his people dynamic. It's why the way he keeps us basking in his grace. Notice the privileges of grace towards Abraham in this episode, the build-up to it. First, he called Abraham from unbelief and placed his favor upon him. He gives Abraham faith to lay hold of the promises that he's making. He makes many promises about Abraham and Sarah and what he would do as a blessing to the world through Abraham. Then he gives regular reassurances because Abraham keeps messing up, just like we keep messing up, but he keeps giving us assurances despite his propensity to wander. He keeps giving assurances that he is committed to save Abraham, his, his family, and his, a people for himself. Then, as we have in this episode we're reading of now in Genesis 18, all along the way, he speaks to Abraham to keep him assured and trusting. That's what the ongoing word of God to us is it keeps us assured. He speaks his revelation to Abraham and gives us his word. How does this apply to us? He's called you to himself and placed his favor upon you. How do I know this? Do you rest in Christ? Do you hear Christ proclaim and say, he's my savior. There's no plan B. Jesus is it. He's the only chance I have with the Father. You have been called by him. That's how you know it. He's given you faith in Christ. And he's given us a trustworthy, Holy Spirit-breathed, preserved book filled with promises about what he has done. And though the world will change one day from this teaching to the next teaching, and the grass will wither, the flower will fade, but the word of God, it'll stand forever because it's preserved by the Spirit and given to his church. He gives us access to his throne of grace regularly, and right now we bask in that. Now, this is all of the privileges of the grace of God that we have time for, we could spend the next weeks and weeks and weeks basking in the privileges of grace. But let's look at the responsibilities of grace that, get, that God calls Abraham to because it relates to us. Starting in verse 19 down to verse 21, you'll see this. The responsibilities of grace I'm calling this. Now, the very word responsibility, I don't know what it conjures for you, but the word literally denotes the nature of an action responsibilities are responses to something. They are, they are a reflex to something, almost necessarily. 
They're actions that come as a response to the great grace shown to us by God. If God has shown you this grace, you will do this. It's not you do this and get his grace. His grace will cause this. And God is just speaking about Abraham's life and what's going to happen as he speaks out loud about the great privilege of grace shown to Abraham and then also the, also the responsibilities. Notice verse 19. For I have chosen him. Why? That he may command his children in household. What? To keep the way of the Lord. What's the way of the Lord? Doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he promised him. This is a complex of things God's speaking of that are the responsibilities of grace for Abraham. And I dare say they're our responsibilities as well. Abraham had a responsibility as a result of God's calling on his life, the the shedding of God's grace on his life. This is a God-ordained mission because it's empowered by God's grace. And the responsibility here looks a certain way. And he has to start with his household. I think this is very important for us. God is saying to you Christians, to us Christians, start with your household, those who are closest to you, under your care, under your stewardship. It could be an extended household. Depends. That's how it was for Abraham. The point is, it doesn't say, Abraham, go into all of Mesopotamia and change the world for me. Now, that may be God's long-term will. I hope for that. We see that in pockets. But for you, for me, start in the kitchen. Start in the living room. Start in your relationships with your household. This is where, this is where you really see faith meet the test of authenticity as we live this life together in our family households and then as we come together as a household of faith. We think too big sometimes and forget how powerful the small is with the household first. This is where he has us to look first, in the household. It says, command his children and his household after him. I can't command their children, but we have to guide our children here first. That, that's what we're called to do. This is what Abraham's called to do. And we don't find this changing. Um, some 500 years later, when Moses is now speaking to an assembled children of Abraham, the Israelites as a nation at that time, by God's Spirit, the prophet speaks these words. And these words I command to you today to be on your heart. You shall teach them these words that I speak to you. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Not just for an hour and ten minutes at church. When you go to lunch, talk about what the sermon... Talk about whether you agreed with the sermon. I'm cool with that. Just make sure you have your Bible open and read the text. But talk about things that matter for eternity with your children while they're still in your house because they're not there long. And your grandchildren, if you get a chance. And people who are in your spheres of influence. It says further, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I'd love to see laws change, but the most important thing would be our households to change. This is why Paul writes in a simple sentence the same thing in Ephesians 6. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He's just repeating Deuteronomy 6. He's just repeating what God says to Abraham in Genesis 18. It has not changed. 
Candlish, the great Presbyterian commentator of Genesis, said, for the transmission of the faith from generation to generation, the, the transmission from generation of generation of the true knowledge and worship of God, for this to happen, it is essential that they who are to command and teach their children after them should themselves understand the scheme of God's providence so that they would be well acquainted with what he has done and what he is doing and what he is going to do on the earth as we share that with one another. That's a responsibility. We, that's a response to the great. If we believe the saving grace of God, then we will necessarily want that propagated in the number one, number one way that happens is in the household. Back to our text, verse 19, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How? By doing righteousness and justice. Those two terms. What does it mean? To do righteousness and justice. Now, he's speaking specifically now in the household of faith. It's not that we can't see these things applied outside the church and the world at large, but it is saying right first in the household, in the extended household of faith. This is about community life. This is about living in a, a godly community. Remember what's coming. He's going to juxtapose this with Sodom and Gomorrah in a bit. And, and Abraham will have to use his, his sanctified reasoning to be able to analyze God's justice and righteousness there. He even will intercede with God on this level. So this sets the stage for something very important, more growth for Abraham. But just taking it in a vacuum, righteousness and justice, what does this mean? Very simply, to do righteousness, to teach to do righteousness, means to walk the way that God has ordained for us to walk, to walk according to his standards, to model his righteousness this way, to obey God and his commands. And teaching children this was especially important for living in a godly community. Also, called to do justice. This is the opposite of what naturally happens with us as human beings. We're mostly about what is fair for us. We, we, we mold things towards ourselves. We're not fair. We're not objective. And this is something God hates, is false scales, partiality. It means to be fair. Love righteousness, teach righteousness. Love justice and fairness and truth, teach this. Imagine if those two traits were inculcated in our homes with the Spirit's aid, of course, how much impact that would necessarily have even beyond our own homes. Back to verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. I'm calling this the God-ordained mission. That's the title of the sermon. But this is all fueled by the filling up of grace that then channels into these things. Keeping the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has pr promised him. It's not saying that the eternal promises are depending on his, dependent on his obedience. But the temporal realization or experience of that which comes from obeying God, that will be realized in real time. When we tell the truth, uh, when we aren't covetous, when we follow the ways of the Lord, those have natural blessings, when we're, not, when we're uh, honoring marriage, all the things that God lays out in his commands, they have natural temporal blessings that Abraham would experience as he lived those out. And as he lived them out and he grew, he became a channel of grace to all those around him. 
these are the privileges and the responsibilities of grace here before us. Abraham was called and God's grace was showered upon him ultimately through Christ. Abraham was expected to respond, to be responsive to God's grace by carrying out responsibilities that God had for him, righteousness and justice, teaching this to his children. Now, I want you to think for a moment of how this story plays out for everybody who's in Christ and take it from the New Testament perspective to show you the continuity between the messages of the old and the new. In Ephesians 1, the description of the privileges of grace Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, not some, not most, not the best, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the privileges of grace. Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, sounds like Abraham, he chose us, that what? That we would be holy and blameless, righteous and justice, holy and blameless. Then you go down to Ephesians 2. And this is a famous passage we always stop a verse short on because it tells the same thing it told Abraham and it tells us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. That's the grace poured out, the privileges of grace. But forget not verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk, that we would pursue righteousness and justice. He gave us this grace so that the response would be good works that he prepared beforehand. Our works of obedience are fruits of God's grace to us. Our works of righteousness and justice they're the results of God's work of grace in us. Any righteous actions from us are reflexive responses wrought by the Holy Spirit, responses to God's wonderful favor to us in Christ. This is how God has ordained the mission of our life. It doesn't read something like this, looking at Abraham. I've done some good things for Abraham. Now, maybe I should give him a heads up about what I'm about to do at Sodom so that he can get an alert and obey me. So then when he obeys me, he can get blessing from this. God's not saying that. He's not saying, I've showed Abraham grace. Now it's up to him to show that he's really grateful. Look at the passage again, verse 19. For I have chosen him, Genesis 18, 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children. I have chosen him so that he might. I have chosen him so he will. I have chosen him that he might command his children and household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Apply Ephesians 2 to Abraham. How about that? For Abraham is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that he should walk in them. That's true for you too. It's true for his church. Because God has much planned for his covenant child, Abraham, he gives him this special revelation. Verse 20 and verse 21, which will lead us to the bulk of the passage, Lord willing, next week. Then the Lord said, after preparing Abraham with this, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, 
I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. God does not call us to be recipients of His grace merely to store up all that grace for ourselves. Lake Mead was created to spread water through a vast area, three states, to be extended far and wide. God has called and made us, the church and us individual believers, to be channels of His grace so that as He pours His grace into our lives, His saving grace, His sanctifying grace, His sustaining grace, we won't just keep it as a reservoir inside, but we'll become channels, instruments through whom He can display His grace to others. There are magnificent privileges that come from God's grace as well as important responsibilities. I close with the words of the Apostle Peter who wrote in this very same spirit when he writes to his original audience and to us now by extension, 1 Peter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, we are recipients of your manifold grace through Christ. Thank you for all the loving kindness that you have poured into us. Now, O Lord, may that grace overflow from our lives into the lives of those closest to us first and then beyond our households and this church. Truly make us to be grateful and effective stewards of your varied grace, that we would be channels of your grace far and wide. Pray this in Christ and through Christ. Amen.